Let's take our Bibles, turn to Job 38. I would argue that at its core, evolution is a problem because it is directly contradictory to the things of the Bible. At its very essence, the intent, in fact, of evolution is to demonstrate the origin of man without relying on supernatural explanations. And so I think that's what makes this issue particularly challenging, and inevitably it would come up. Keep in mind that what we're doing on Sunday nights, and now have been for some time, is preparing ourselves to engage with the world with the gospel. And if you recall, the first half of this teaching was going through different methods of evangelism. I I, I noted four in particular, one of them being kind of the the method that's given in the Gideon Bible. The other three methods all begin at the same spot. All of them have you addressing the individual in the exact same way. You begin by sharing that there is a God who created everything, and that He made it perfect, and He made it good, that He made two people, Adam and Eve, and that those two people violated the one and only prohibition God laid down upon them, and as a result, the world is a broken place. So think about that. That is the method. These are the methods we have talked about in how to share the gospel. If you get into this gospel presentation with somebody who believes in evolution, then their first response back to you is going to be, wait a minute. God, in the beginning, creating everything out of nothing, all of humanity can be tracked back to a single origin of one man and one woman? How how can you even believe that? Why would you even believe? Isn't it, in fact, the case that evolution has demonstrated that we all are the result of mutation after mutation based on really what would be random selection, all right? A random process going on. In other words, there's nothing orderly or for sure there's nothing divine above the working of evolution to ensure this process. Where we have come from, we started off as single-celled organisms, and we had just the right amount of heat and just the right amount of light and just the right amount of chemicals, and bam, single-celled organisms, and suddenly we begin adapting to our environment, sprout legs, sprout lungs, we walk up on the ground, and from there we get from that to what we are now, over a process of billions of years, billions of years. By the way, for the record, don't let anybody tell you that the timing that evolution has come up with is anywhere near possible. If evolution is true, then the world is about 10 times, if not 20 times, older than even what they would say. It's impossible for evolution to happen in the amount of time they have given up to this point. That's just, that's a whole separate thing. You're welcome to check that out, all right? But that, that is what then evolution says, and this is the challenge that may be issued to us as believers when we say, no, no, everything was created in the moment God spoke it, it was made, here we are. God creating a distinction between the animals and between man. So we're talking about conflicting, competing views of 
the beginning. So, how do, we, how do we handle this? And so what I've decided to do with this set of teaching in particular is to give a little bit more detail, to take a little bit more time and walk our way through some of these issues, because I think you're, you're likely to come across these folks, and maybe to kind of shore up in our own hearts and minds. What do we believe about the beginning? Are, are we confident in the way we think things happened? Do we have a reason to be confident in that? In fact, has evolution demonstrated itself to be a, an appropriate description of beginnings? And so our process started last Sunday night just, just to deal with two issues. One, what does the Bible say about the beginning? And two, what are the deficiencies of evolution? Why is it that that is, in fact, a competing worldview with Christianity, biblical Christianity, and, and why is it something that you, pastor, would say is not an acceptable view of human origin? So this, this is our task. And so last week we started off with the first of these. And number one, and it's there in your notes, and we already spent some time in this, and, and that is the, the first principle, and this is where we're beginning all of these studies, the Bible testifies that God and God alone is responsible for creation. God is responsible for this thing. God started it. God... It, God And it's not like God just put the elements together and then evolution took off. The Bible doesn't leave any room for this as an option. The Bible speaks to God intentionally, personally, creating every component of creation complete all the way up into man. And so we turn to our attention first then to the account of creation. We're looking at five reasons why we would believe this. We looked at the account of creation. We went to Genesis chapter 1. We spent all of our time looking at Genesis 1. And I I hope it was a helpful time of instruction. And I would encourage you to go back to it again if you haven't had a chance to read it again. It's one of those passages maybe we think we're familiar with, but maybe not. And here's what I think is most instructive for us, at least as it pertains to this issue of evolution. Reading Genesis chapter 1, there's no way. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, right, to begin the next one. There's no way that text is intended to give us a mythical, allegorical, or symbolic depiction of creation. That's often what's argued, by the way. It's often said by some, well, the, in fact, some will say the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is all myth. It's all mythical. Well, I, I don't know what your definition of myth would be. I don't know what other people's definition of myth would be. But if Genesis 1 is a myth, it is a horrible one. It is poorly written. You want to talk about a good myth? Go read the Native American version of Beginnings. And the, the earth sits on the top of the back of a turtle, all right? Now, that's a myth, right? That's good. That's got some imagery to it. You can imagine, right? A big lumbering turtle, I don't know, floating throughout the universe, and the earth is resting on it like a big marble. I'm not sure how that works, but that's, that's one option. That's one option out there. Now, that's a myth. Read Genesis 1. You find no component of symbolism, of myth. It's all very ordered, straightforward, literal, 
On day one, God did this. On day two, God did this. On day three, God did this. On day four, God did this. You don't get the sense reading this that there's anything but a literal description of what happened. Again, understand why we're doing this. I think what matters the most is what does the Bible say about these things? Because I believe the Bible is divine revelation. Scott, how do you know? Pastor, how do you know the Bible is divine revelation? Because it says that it is. Self-justifying. Because it is a source of divine authority. I don't have to justify that. It is what it is. Because God has said this is His Word, and so I have a presupposition. We've said this all along. One of the challenges I have to any evolutionist is, is just that. Show me that your version of things is not grounded on presuppositions. You are presuming certain things to be true. One thing they presume to be true is that there's not a supernatural explanation for beginnings. They can't prove it. It's a presumption. It's something they are basing their worldview on. I have mine. And mine is, is that the Bible is God's revelation to us. And what does the Bible tell me about beginnings? God made it. The account of creation gives me the sovereign, ordered, good work of God. Laying it all out for me. Laying it out, by the way, as we noted last week, in an order that does conform to the pattern that it should have happened in. So, so everything about that chapter, I think, lays out for us a, a reasonable depiction. A couple of other texts that I want you to note uh, that speak to creation. I have them there in your notes, and we'll read Job 38 here in just a moment. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Again, if we're, if we're just looking for other texts that speak to God personally crafting creation. I mean, that's what the psalmist is getting at. It's not, he is saying that the heavens declare, the heavens tell us that God is a God of great glory and power. Why? Because these are the handiwork of God. Handmade. We, we talked about this last week, right? God made it by hand from scratch, out of nothing. Only being ever to ever make anything from scratch. Ever. So this is what God has done. The, hand, the creation demonstrates this. Look, look at Job 38. We won't read every bit of this, but this is interesting to me. And if you know the story of Job, if you've, uh, I, I notice when I, when I announced that uh, I, you know, I'm ready to start a new study and do something in the Old Testament, you know, no one came up to me and said, Pastor, why don't you preach verse by verse through Job? No one said that, all right? If you've ever read through Job, wow, it's a tough one. And it's supposed to be tough, by the way. I'm convinced Job is supposed to be frustrating. <laughs> it is a book about grief, and I think it is supposed to be frustrating. And you remember part of the book is, why is God doing this to Job? Why, why is it that, that, that all of these bad things has happened to such a, a good, righteous man? And even here at the end, in chapter 37, 36 to 37, Job is asking the same thing. God, I need an answer. So then we have this in verse 1, of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. 
And notice where God goes. Job is asking God, God, why are all these bad things happening to me? Why is it that you're allowing such evil and suffering to fall upon my head? Job's even suggesting that maybe God's doing something unfair and inappropriate. And notice what God's response is. God never answers his question. Job has said, why am I suffering? Why is this happening? God never answers it, by the way. God's response is to do this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. If you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it, takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment, from the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken, have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And this goes on for two chapters. God lays out this argument where in essence he's asking Job, where were you when I was doing all of this? Which is a pretty strong answer for somebody who has lost all of his kids and all of his money and all of his property, right? (laughs) It is instructive for a lot of reasons. And we won't go into it in terms of the theology of suffering uh, and how we handle suffering that Job speaks to. But if you want a personal testimony from God about what he says about how everything began, there you go. At least the way God sees it, (laughs) he made everything. I mean, that's his argument here. Job has no right to question God's motives or intent to challenge God's plan because God is the one who made everything. God is the creator, and therefore, God can do with his creation as he sees fit. I mean, that's what he's getting at. But I think it's interesting that this, for sure, gives us this testimony to what is God's work of creation. Then note, back on your notes again, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him. Now again, for anyone who wants to try and marry evolution and the Bible, you're going to have to do great damage to the Bible to make that happen. Because this is clearly giving a picture of creation and the triune God being personally, intentionally involved 
in the making not just of the first things. He could have said that. And, and, and the first things were made through him, and nothing at the beginning was made that was not from him. He could have said something like that, but he didn't. All things were made. And then Colossians 1.16 picks up that same language. I think Paul picking up that same language, then says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So, so again, this attempt to reconcile evolution with Genesis 1. And that's often what I hear, by the way. I've seen numerous attempts to reconcile evolution in Genesis 1. That's a fundamental problem, a, fu- a problematic approach to the whole thing. I'm not just, I just don't need you to reconcile it with Genesis 1. I need you to reconcile it with all of it. I need you to tell me how that's reconciled then with what, what is said about Jesus there, what is said about in Him all things were created. They were created by Him and for Him. So this is the account of creation. Creation is spoken of as being a work of God, of His power, intentionally and personally. All right, letter B. The testimony of Jesus. Testimony of Jesus. So, Genesis 1 gives us that evidence of creation, telling us how God made, the order in which God made. What's interesting, though, so again, some may say, well, you know, couldn't those first few chapters, you know, couldn't they be symbolic? Couldn't be, they be poetic? Uh, do they have to be taken literally? Well, Jesus seems to take them literally. Consider John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. Jesus believes the words of Moses. So first and foremost, that's critical. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Now, that, 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 is a, that is a statement that has significant theological ramifications. But it's, it's interesting that what Jesus is doing here is pointing out to those he is speaking to, I believe Moses and the first five books of the Bible. He says, your problem is you don't believe that. That's, that's what he's getting at with these detractors of his. But he's saying... I. If you, if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me. I think this is, a, this is an implicit commendation. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and I believe every word of it. Then note Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. Jesus is, is asked a question related to divorce. And it's one of those situations where the Pharisees are trying to, you know, trap him. So one of those common interactions. And notice his response. Here, here is the question first. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he, Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I bring that up not because we're going to talk about the issue of divorce and remarriage. I bring that up because what what is Jesus drawing from to make his argument? Genesis. 
He specifically is saying, here's how God created. He created humanity by first making them male and female, and then joining them together. Now, some may read that and say, oh, but pastor, I mean, couldn't he be talking about males and females, general terms for the way he was going to cause reproduction to happen? You really think that's what he's getting at when he quotes? He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. When it says he made them male and female, there's no doubt in Jesus' mind, and there's no doubt in the minds of the Pharisees and anybody listening to him, Jesus means God created Adam and Eve and established the first marriage, and here's how we should understand it. And this wouldn't make any sense if Adam and Eve were mythical or symbolic people. If, if Adam and Eve were, were, were symbolic of just the generations, right? If they were symbolic of mankind in general, this argument doesn't make any sense. Of course, Jesus is specifically referring here to Adam and Eve, to the creation order. Now, so why do I bring that up? Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily you know, speak to Genesis 1 and evolution, but clearly Jesus believes humanity goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Not as symbolic, poetic characters, mythical characters, but as literal ones. All right, letter C. So again, as, as we're thinking about the way in which the Bible testifies that God and God alone is responsible for creation. The account of creation tells us that. Testimony of Jesus tells us that. The work of salvation. It's another reason uh, why we need to believe the creation account as given in Scripture and understand God making the world as He made it and then making at the end of that creation Adam and Eve. Not, not in transitional forms, go, going from a piece of lake slime to an ape and then walking out as man, right? That God made man as a man, <laughs> full-grown man. He didn't even make Adam as a little bitty baby, right? I mean, we're talking full-grown man, full-grown woman. That's how he made them. There's no transition, there's no evolution, there's no development from one kind of organism to a more complicated kind of organism, and, and that humanity begins not in the created order, not with these other organisms or, or other animal or species. Mankind begins from the beginning as man. And this is absolutely essential for the work of salvation. You say, Pastor, how, how, how can you possibly connect this with the work of salvation. Well, we won't go there. We won't flesh, flesh it out, though you could if you wanted to turn, you know, if you wanted to do your own study, I, I would encourage you then to read Romans chapter 5. I, I figured we've spent enough time in some of these texts in Romans, all right? Romans chapter 5, because here's the argument Paul makes about salvation. Paul says the reason why you and I are in such a mess of sin, chapters 1 and 1 through 3, the reason why we are in the condition that we are in is because we are all under Adam. Adam is our head. Because we're all under Adam, because Adam serves as what is called the, the federal head of humanity, because he sinned, right? Understanding that as a combination of Adam and Eve, 
but, be, but it's Adam's sin because Adam was the one who received the command from God. So, so we, we, are, we are under Adam, and because of our connection to Adam, we've all sinned. We're all broken, depraved, fallen, rebels, because we are made in the image of Adam. Paul uses this language then, just as Adam came, sin comes into the world, and we're dead in him, we need another Adam, a better Adam. And so, so, so Romans chapter 5 then lays out this theology of Jesus being the better Adam, the last Adam, the perfect Adam, the one who, who doesn't succumb to temptation, the one who lives in, in, in perfect faith and obedience to the Father, the one fully human, fully divine, and that in Him then the curse is broken so that we can come out from under being come out from under Adam and come under Jesus. So, again, without, without you know, breaking that down into, into more detail than, than perhaps we would want, if there's no literal Adam, how do we understand the fall? If there's no literal Adam, how do we understand sin and rebellion? If we don't all start from the same person, why, why are we in the condition that we're in? <laughs> How did all this happen? So, so this in particular is for those who flirt with the idea that, again, evolution and the Bible can be compatible. Again, they can't without doing great damage to the Bible. You have to reject a lot of stuff in there, and this would be one of them. The only, the only notion which I can understand my sin condition is my theology as it relates to Adam. Furthermore, if Adam was not a singular individual through whom the world was broken, then how do I understand Jesus being a singular person through whom the curse of sin can be broken? In, in other words, you, you could then state it this way. Jesus believed Adam was a literal person. Paul believed Adam was a literal person. I don't know who you want to attach your, hitch your wagon to. Paul, Paul and Jesus seem pretty good, right? Seems like pretty good wagons to hitch to. So I'm going to stick with them, right? My guess is a lot more people have read their words than any evolutionist ever throughout all of human history for all time, Right? So, so th- this, this is an important principle. The work of salvation, I think, speaks to this issue. Letter D. <clears throat> the glory of God. The glory of God. This takes us really back to that verse that, that's already in your notes, Psalm, uh, Psalm 19.1. Heavens declare the glory of God and and, and, and creation is, is a way of, of demonstrating His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, here's, here's something that I, I have often thought about. It, it was interesting. I had somebody challenge me many, many years ago on this who, uh, who felt like I was shortchanging God. Because you, you should know about, about me. Not only do I not believe in evolution, I, I also believe in a young earth. I'm just one of those guys who thinks that when the Bible says it was day one, it was day one. All right? 
you know, I'm just a simple guy, okay? And I think when it said morning and evening, or actually it says evening and morning, I think it was evening and morning, all right? I don't know what else to say other than that. So I, I, I believe in, in, in young earth, probably about 10,000 years. I know, I know, man, your minds are spinning. I get it, okay? Uh, there'll be more on that later, all right? But I had somebody challenge me on this and said, Pastor, your God is too small. What? <laughs> this was years ago. Yeah, I mean, if you, you think creation only happened in six days, my God is a God of such great power, he, he, cre- it, he took millions of years to create. And, and I just, I, you know, I, I was like a puppy dog, you know, that looks at you like, huh? Right? I mean, I, I did that. Micah does that all the time. It's a great look. I know I've confused him when he goes, huh? Right? Just like that. And I know that's how I looked at her. I just didn't understand the concept. God is more powerful if it takes him millions of years than if it took him six days. Maybe somebody here can explain that to me later, all right? I don't get that. To me, it's the opposite. You know what shows great power? And this is obviously a bit metaphorical. That God didn't even have to lift a finger to create. I shared this yesterday with the ladies. When you look at Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light, the most literal translation, the, the simplest Hebrew translation, God said, light. That was it. He, he didn't even have the dramatic English, let there be light. The only thing God had to say, light. That's it. That's it. And I, and, I, and I think of the majesty of the world around us. And I, and I think that the Bible so often testifies to this, that, that it, it, His invisible attributes, Romans 1, a text we've gone to again and again, Romans 1 telling us that these invisible attributes are known that people see them, that they can even, that they can know there is a God, there is a Godhead, there is a God of great power and a God of great glory. In fact, Romans 1 says they even know there is a God of wrath. They understand this is an expression of God's power. I, I, just, I just don't see where there is glory in God taking a billion years to take, to take us from a single-celled organism to something more complicated, working our way up the food chain, so to speak, with, with small incremental changes, though there's another version that says they were quick, spontaneous, and then long periods in between. By the way, there's radical inconsistencies among evolutionists about how these things happened, which is, you never hear about, all right? But there are. But th- this, is, this is what they say would happen. And so the person who wants to marry evolution and creation, evolution and the Bible... I think it robs so many verses that talk about creation being this expression of God's glory. I mean, if if it happened over the course of millions and millions of years through this kind of process, how is that glory? How does that tell me anything about God? I I think it's just the opposite of that. I think the, the fact that God spoke and it came into existence... And not only did it come into existence, 
It came into existence in its maturity. That's how I think God created. God didn't create a seed. created the orange tree, right? God didn't make little baby Adam and little baby Eve, right? Grown up Adam and Eve. God didn't make creeks that eventually over time became rivers. God made the river. God made the ocean. In other words, all all of this was made with nothing but His speaking. This is glory. This is something that you look at and say, yes, God is a God of great glory. All right, let me give you one more, letter E. And that is the requirement for faith. The requirement for faith. None of these other things settle it for you. I hope this does. Hebrews 11.3, Hebrews chapter 11 is that great chapter on faith, right? Where God, where, where the author walks us through all of these Old Testament characters by faith, by faith, by faith, right? This, by faith, they did this, you know, Abel, Abraham, uh, the prophets, you know, all, all of these great characters of the Old Testament. But before he gets to all of those characters, he first says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. I mean, that to me seems fairly straightforward, right? Of course, then it goes on to say in verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For who comes to God must believe that He is that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So again, what the author of Hebrews is telling us that part of faith is believing that the worlds were framed by God. By God's very Word. And so that the things that we have now, they were not made out of pre-existing stuff. God made out of nothing. Again, this is the biblical testimony. Now, here's what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to need you to hold on to these notes, okay? I know it was a stretch thinking I would get to that. But you've been used to that for ten years. It won't change, all right? I uh, will continue to do it like this. But hold on to these because next week, next week we will then get into evolution... In particular, when it's carefully considered, we'll, we'll show serious deficiencies. Serious deficiencies. And in fact, here's the argument I'm going to make next week. So I'm going to let you mull on this, all right? Evol- I think I've alluded to it last week. Evolution is not science. Evolution is not science. Evolution is philosophical and it is a worldview. Again, that, that may sound really strange, but, but I'd go ahead and give a little tease to say this. Is there a branch of science just called evolution? There's not. In other words, you got chemistry, biology, physics, 
You know what is standing over all of those in the scientific world? Evolution. I think I told you last week, sophomore in college, my very first history class ever, world history, chapter one, first lecture, evolution. History class, evolution. Evolution is not a pure science. I'll argue why next week. It is not a pure science. It is something much more. In fact, I would argue evolution is much more like theology than an evolutionist would ever love to admit. And they would pass out and their eyeballs would explode if they were sitting here and I said that. I mean, it would, it would just, you would hear screeching, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, all right? Uh, that's what you'd hear. But I'm telling you, that is the case. There is much more connection with theology and evolution as, as a worldview than there is evolution with the sciences. All right, so that's a bit tease. Come back next week, and uh, we'll keep trucking our way through. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us tonight, gathering us on this Lord's Day. Uh, we're grateful now for the week that lays out before us. We're grateful that as we go into it, we know that you are our creator, that you are a God who made out of nothing, that we are humans, track our ancestry back to the first ones, Adam and Eve, and that in them the world and humanity was broken. And we're grateful to know that you, by your grace and through your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, made it possible that we might be restored unto you. So, Father, we are grateful as we enter into the rest of this week that we can do so knowing that you are a God who has loved us and saved us and secured us and that, that you are with us each and every moment of the day. And so we enter by faith, trusting this week to you, praying, God, that you and your grace and in your wisdom and mercy would lead and guide us, that we might live faithful lives, lives that glorify you, lives through which others see the gospel, give us boldness that we might then open our mouths to share that message with the lost you bring our way. Again, Father, we yield our lives to you, asking that you'd use us as you see fit. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.